Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Subscribe to Unchained on YouTube, where you can watch the videos of me and my guests. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. One Inch Exchange is DeFi's leading DEX aggregator that discovers the best trade practices across all DEXs. One Inch was launched in May 2019 by two white hat hackers at ETH Global's ETH New York Hackathon. One Inch has reached almost $7 billion in overall volume in just over a year. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto, all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC and more than 20 other coins. Download the Crypto.com app now to find out how much you could be earning. Today's episode is a recap of 2020's biggest crypto stories. It was, to say the least, an eventful year with macro events intersecting with crypto in many, many fascinating ways. First and foremost, the pandemic highlighted the unique qualities of Bitcoin, and that began the snowball that turned into the nascent avalanche of corporate and billionaire interest that I believe is likely to only grow next year. That came alongside some heightened and less welcomed by the community regulatory scrutiny. The regulatory story is still ongoing with a particularly fraught battle playing out over the holidays over the proposed FinCEN rule on self-hosted wallets. And I'm sure regulation will continue to be a big story throughout 2021. Other than that, the innovation side saw both progress and setbacks and the weirdness and fun that are the hallmarks of crypto with yield farming taking off and governance experiments giving glimpses of a decentralized future, but with hacks and exploits also keeping everyone on their toes. I hope you and your loved ones are able to celebrate the holidays in a safe way and that you're able to also take a moment to be quiet and grateful for all the wonderful things in your life. Because I expect that 2021 is going to be a rocket ship of a year for crypto. So the first topic we'll explore in these highlights is Bitcoin, the biggest crypto story this year. When the pandemic began, the various stimulus packages kicked in and the halving occurred. And it just felt like, how are these not the perfect conditions for Bitcoin? Meltem Demiris of CoinShares expressed it even better when she came on the show with Lynn Alden for the Why Bitcoin Now series. Here's Meltem. One important thing to keep in mind is we've never really seen how Bitcoin behaves during an economic recession. And at this point, I think it's fair to say we are in a recession after two quarters of back-to-back economic contraction. So what I think is really interesting is for the first time, we are actually watching Bitcoin in the environment for which Bitcoin was sort of designed, if you will. If you look at what's happening, which you know Lynn has alluded to and has written about in so much of her research, the environment we're in right now um, that is unfolding, you know, there's all this money printing going on. When money printer go brr, 
right? We anticipate inflation will happen. Just because it hasn't happened yet and just because uh, from a CPI or consumer price index perspective, we aren't feeling inflation doesn't mean it's not rampant in the market. If we look at the facts, U.S. home prices are seeing their fastest quarter over quarter increase in recent history, I think in 40-year history. So home prices are going up at a very rapid pace. Um, we're seeing equities, right? Equities are trading at 2025 forward PE multiples. So people are pricing in their expectations of the future today, and they're looking for, for growth. So I think Bitcoin is actually starting to find its place in the narrative. We talk about narrative all the time in the crypto space. And I think one of the things Lynn alluded to when she talked about the having psyche, you know, this is one of the narratives. It's also substantiated with a lot of data, but the having narrative is is a consistent one we've had over sort of the last 12 years of Bitcoin. And I think what we're seeing now, and the reason I talk about all of these facts is this narrative that we've talked about in the Bitcoin community for, you know, the last seven years that I've been in it is now finally unfolding in the real world. And so watching Bitcoin's behavior in this environment, I think is really exciting. Um, to me, you know, we're going to continue to test Bitcoin's strength. I think uh, Bitcoin's decoupling from equities has been interesting to watch. Bitcoin's breakout from gold has been interesting to watch. But until this actually plays out and we have the data and the evidence, which again, like that's what I love about Lynn is she's like, show me the receipts, <laughs> right? Show me the receipts. So until we have the receipts to prove Bitcoin's behavior in this environment we've hypothesized about for so long, um, it'll be difficult to sort of say definitively what will happen. But my view, I'm very bullish, very excited. And as um, our friend Raul Powell likes to say, irresponsibly long. So. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Novogratz of Galaxy Digital and Raul Powell of Global Macro Investor and Real Vision talked about how Bitcoin is a call option on a crisis with fiat, which was another angle on Meltem's point about how the pandemic was Bitcoin's moment. Bitcoin really is going to disrupt one, one, one thing, right? The crypto universe was going to disrupt everything. Uh, Bitcoin really right now is being bet on to disrupt, disrupt central banks. And so the fact that, you know, backed or fidelity or real institutions are going to hold it for you and custody it, uh, some of the crypto junkies would be like, dude, that's not even the whole spirit of crypto, right? The spirit of crypto was to get away from those institutions. Well, in a meta sense, yes. But in a specific sense, the bet on Bitcoin is a is a hedge versus fiat. So it's disrupting one piece. And so I think having those trusted names in and around uh, keeping someone's Bitcoin safe. I mean, it's shocking, you know, like it's because it, it's almost comical when when you originally started telling the story of, this is going to be a disruption for the banking system, but can I keep it at JP Morgan? <laughs> but if you think about it, the first leg here is disrupting central banks. It's this fiat that's being printed like it's toilet paper. Yeah, because if you think about it in the terms of, right, we've never gone through such central bank uncertainty. None of us have lived through monetary printing of this kind of magnitude. In fact, none of us even believed it would ever happen. So when you've got something that is so large and it continues, I mean, it do doesn't go away. It gets worse and worse and worse. Everybody has to ask the question, well, what could it mean? And Bitcoin is the call option on the what could it mean? And it's as well, simple as that. So in a big portfolio, a very little bet can end up being a very big thing if something at the central bank level, i.e. fiat currency, come into a larger problem. Surprisingly, Shamath Palahapatiya of Social Capital didn't seem to think the pandemic itself was necessarily going to be a catalyst for Bitcoin, but he still made his case for Bitcoin as a hedge. 
Um, look, the government has done, you know, uh, depending on how technical you want to get, six or seven forms of quantitative easing since the great financial crisis. So we could have picked any one of those moments and said, this is Bitcoin's moment. And what I'm trying to get across to you is that, you know, it's there. there is no seminal event. And I think that people waiting for a seminal event um, probably create more speculation than is healthy for Bitcoin. Um, I think that, you know, this is a parade of terribles. It's a, it's a bunch of small things that eventually add together, bring down the entire, you know, way in which we think the, the financial infrastructure of the world works. We will lose credibility in it. There will not be a, a single thing, Laura, that you will be able to point to. This will be the sum of many, many bad decisions. Um, and it's the compounding of bad decisions. And, um, you know, historians will try to pinpoint an event, and I think it, it'll be not worth the time. I just think that this is in a, it's a pattern. And, um, you know, when you see the pattern, I think you just have to be prepared to hedge it, be on the other side of it, hope the pattern stops. Because quite honestly, if your Bitcoin bet pays off, it will be cataclysmically destructive for the world. Um, and that'll have enormous consequences to many people that we all know and care about who weren't hedged in Bitcoin. Um, and so you almost don't want it to happen. Um, and, but you literally only can see one path to its success. You don't see any other reason for it to succeed, even in a world where um, not everything else comes crashing down. Not really. Um, you know, I mean, I think that people could claim that it's a more frictionless payment mechanism or payment rails. I, I don't really buy that. Um, I think that there are much easier to use products that eventually will become, you know, uh, virtual payment mechanisms that connect the world, whether it's WhatsApp or the Cash App or Venmo or WePay, um, all of these things will eventually be threaded together in an underlying framework uh, that'll allow seamless money transfer, uh, zero cost, instantaneously. Um, you know, in a ledger that's that's uh, that gives you a sense of security and transparency. All all of these things, I think, will eventually happen. And so, the use cases for Bitcoin, I think, uh, become less and less as a product and more and more as an instrument. And uh, again, then you have to think about what the underlying value of the instrument is. You know, people try to make this case for gold all the time that there is an industrial use for gold. And I would say maybe, but overwhelmingly, um, folks use it as as uh, an instrument to hedge uh, other parts of their assets and other parts of their portfolio. Similarly, we will make the case ad infinitum for the industrial value of Bitcoin but the overwhelming use case for the most people will be as a financial hedge. And I think that that's good enough um, because that's what will get our, you know, quote unquote, the, you know, the proverbial sort of grandmother, grandfather to buy this thing is that concept because they can understand that much more easily than they can understand distributed ledgers and, you know, seamless payment gateways and this and that. And it's, it's, it's all a little gobbledygook at some level. Kathy Wood of ARK Invest and Dan Tapiero of 10T Holdings and Gold Bullion International broke down how corporate adoption of Bitcoin could affect the price. And it certainly looks like this was the year where this trend began to take off. Yasin just wrote, uh, I think, another blog. I'm, uh, if, if it's not out now, it, it will be soon. And uh, it may have been part of our second paper. And uh, basically uh, took a look at 10 years worth of data, all of the assets that uh, 
you know, are available to institutions uh, and the managed assets uh, uh, at that. So those that are actually managed by third parties. Um, And that's about 110 trillion in the world. So a 10 year study um, in order and and using correlations of returns and all of the the usual uh, uh, metrics um, determined that the um, in order to minimize the volatility of putting uh, Bitcoin in the portfolio and still enjoy the return, I think that was a two and a half percent a two percent position. Uh, if you wanted to maximize the return and were willing to accept more volatility, that would have been a six and a half percent position. And uh, the punchline, and this is uh, this is going to be years away, but if that six and a half, if institutions were to um, hew to that six and a half percent in Bitcoin, uh, that would, uh, you know, all other things equal, knowing what we know about the supply out here, uh, and and the fact that. More than 50% of all the Bitcoin holders right now uh, have held the Bitcoin for more than a year uh, and many for more than five years. Uh, just So you have to take that out as a, you know, a supply constraint. Uh, the number he came up with as a price target, and I don't want this plastered all over <laughs> headlines and so forth because this is just if, 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 lots of ifs there, is $500,000. Oh wow! By what? And did he have like a by a certain time period, or just no, if these is, things happen? This will happen gradually, and and believe me, we're talking about the institutional world. Uh, these sorts of things happen quite gradually. Yeah, but I think that's about that's a, around the right number. I've quoted, I've been quoted at least ten or fifteen times in the past year with that kind of three hundred to five hundred thousand number. It's not. It's just not too crazy. I mean, the market cap of Bitcoin now is call it 300 billion uh, if you understand what the you know the security apparatus is that is the Bitcoin network and you sort of contemplate what that kind of network is actually worth to the world I mean you could easily say it's worth two three four trillion it's certainly worth more than one company in the Nasdaq and so that can get you to that number it's just that look it's it's a complex thing most, most people don't even realize you know that it is a network. They think it's a they think it's a, a price bobbing up and down or flashing on their Bloomberg, uh, or that it's magic uh, money uh, or what, whatever it is. So magic internet money. Yeah. Regulation was one of the big news stories this year, particularly threats from regulation to crypto wallets. This was first discussed on the show when Dave Jevons of CypherTrace, Disclosure, a previous sponsor of my shows, and Sean Jones of XReg Consulting came on Unchained to discuss the travel rule and how it would impact exchanges and transactions. Dave starts talking about how exchanges, also called virtual asset service providers, or VASPs, have to send each other information on customers who make transactions between exchanges. So how do I know for across all virtual currencies hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of virtual currencies and chains. How do I know um, whether it's a personal wallet or uh, or um, a custodial wallet? So that's first one. Um, do I know I have to send it or not? And um, same on the inbound. So when I get the transaction, do I know that it came from a personal wallet or do I have to wait for this information to arrive to me from some other VASP or exchange, what have you, to come in. So that is one of the challenges. Another challenge is, 
and then, you know, there's a lot of technical detail around it. So how do you do it without creating a global list of every address that belongs to every exchange? So preserving privacy is a big issue that we've been working on. We believe privacy is, is of, of a dramatic importance. You know, this simple idea is, well, we'll just create a database or a blockchain of everybody. This is not, in or for various reasons, a good idea. <laughs> and then you have other problems around how do I know who's a VASP and how do I know who isn't and what country are they in and how do I stop ones from spoofing each other so that I can reap all of the data, pretend to be a VASP who hasn't signed up yet, get all the customer data from other people. So there's a quite a number of security and privacy issues that have to be dealt with. And of course, it has to be cross-chain. It has to be global. And so these are the technical challenges that combined with the regulatory that, you know, we've been working on as an industry. Okay, so I just want to make sure the audience um, has caught on. Essentially, anytime there is a transaction between two custodians, meaning two exchanges or two wallets that are both custodial wallets, then this information will be sent. And if, you know, either for the sender or the recipient that it's someone transacting using their own private keys, managing their own keys, then the information will not be sent. But then I also want to make sure, so it sounds like depending on the jurisdiction that the types of information being sent will differ. And it sounds like, you know, your identity is a key piece of it and who you're transacting with is also a key piece. But then in terms of other things, like when you said in Switzerland that they also include your transaction history a little bit or something, uh, that's no, they don't include the transaction history, but they're extending it to um, self-custodial wallets where you have to make declarations about who you are. So they've oh. taken it beyond VASP to VASP. They're stretching the boundary to look at, you know, extending it to more self-custodial wallets, which is, you know, challenging and obviously not a great not a great thing in my opinion and, and and actually seemingly out of character for the <laughs> Swiss exactly are famous of Switzerland from uh, 11 or 12 years ago yes <laughs> The first indication that regulation might threaten self-hosted wallets came from something known as the Swiss roll here is Jake Chervinsky of Compound explaining what that is the Swiss roll basically says we are going to require financial institutions not only to collect information about transactions between uh, you know, customers' accounts at, at regulated institutions, but also customers' transactions with self-hosted wallets. So what the rule says is, in order for a financial institution to allow a withdrawal of crypto to a self-hosted wallet or to allow a deposit of crypto from a self-hosted wallet, the institution must verify the beneficial owner of the self-hosted wallet. And to, to sort of step out of the legalese and tell you what that really means, what it means is if I am a customer of one of those financial institutions and I want to send some Bitcoin from my account at an exchange to my ledger hardware wallet, I would have to prove to the exchange that I am actually the owner of the ledger hardware wallet that I want to withdraw those assets too. And the problem is, it's really hard to prove that my ledger hardware wallet belongs to me, right? What am I going to do? Show a receipt that I purchased it, send a picture showing that it's still in my possession. I didn't give it to somebody else. So this has become a very complex and difficult standard to meet. And the result of that is, 
in essence, at least as I understand it, Swiss financial institutions have simply refused to allow any transactions with self-hosted wallets because it is just too complicated to figure out how to comply with that rule. So at this point, we have this bifurcated market that Kristen mentioned in Switzerland, where you have some crypto on exchanges or with custodians in this regulated financial institution world. And that crypto can move around between those financial institutions, but it can never move off of that walled garden into a self-hosted wallet. And similarly, any crypto that is in sort of the self-hosted world, right, that people have self-custody of, that they're moving around through their own transactions on the blockchain, they can never get those assets into the financial institution world. Yeah, that um, (laughs) uh, somehow seems untenable to me, but um, I'm not a regulator. One thing I wanted to ask was, you know, Switzerland is just one place. So if this were to be implemented there, would it really have a ripple effect or would it simply affect people who use um, some of the exchanges or wallets uh, in Switzerland? Well, I worry that it could have a ripple effect. I I worry that when you have one nation do something, um, then, um, you know, other countries will look around and say, oh, they're being tougher on illicit finance than we are. And there's sort of a race to make sure that regulations are are strong enough and meeting the strongest standards. And and the reason that there is such concern about unhosted wallets is, um, you know, for, for for those who understand this space, but for policymakers who might be less um, less schooled on the inner workings of cryptocurrency, you know, the, the the major concern is that today, you know, cash is obviously the the method of choice for criminals, whether it's for terrorist financing or for anti-money laundering, that 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 is like the, the the preferred methodology. But if I want to finance some terrorists on the other side of the world with cash, I actually have to physically deliver that cash. I have to put it in a bunch of suitcases and get on an airplane. And at some point along the way, um, you know, like there's a good chance I might get caught with all of that. But the concern that these these regulators and policymakers have is that with self-hosted wallets, you can do very large amounts of volume um, almost instantaneously. And so um, that that is is something that they're trying to wrap their heads around and figure out what to do. Um, you know, sort of the irony is that the way that we track down these guys today is using, um, you know, these, there are these specialized firms that do forensic analysis of the blockchains. And because we have information about some of the wallet addresses and don't have information about some of them, we're still able to piece together, um, you know, we, not me, but these firms are able to piece together and in many times identify who has that information. But the irony is that if we get to this bifurcated world, we'll have no information about the world of self-hosted wallets while having perfect information about the world of hosted wallets. And so, the the cure that these policymakers are coming up with by that results in this split world is actually going to make the the it more difficult to find the bad guys and not um, um, and not stop it. And so, you know, we we're hopeful that by doing some education around this, that we'll be able to prevent some of these ideas from taking off in the U.S. Um, and not make the Swiss rule the standard that we will see globally. 
The story over regulation culminated late in December in a new proposed rule by FinCEN, reportedly driven solely by Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. In this episode with Jeremy Allaire of Circle and Kristen Smith of the Blockchain Association, Jeremy summarizes the main issues with the proposed regulation. There's so many issues with with the proposed rule. There's so many issues with the process by which this is happening. This is, you know, a a, a midnight rulemaking, uh, you know, attempt. This is extremely unilateral uh, from the Secretary of Treasury himself, uh, despite uh, significant objections throughout the government, including from within law enforcement to this. So this is a highly politically motivated individual who wants to jam this through and is doing everything in his power uh, to do that, despite uh, despite many, many good actors in the federal government who I think realize that something like this should not be just jammed through and requires really careful review, deliberation and, and planning and thinking. So we'll come back to that maybe. But I, I, I do want to say, you know, when you when you look at blockchains, like the fundamental innovation today is this this infrastructure where you can actually have programmable money. Um, the the breakthroughs that are happening. This is what motivated me to get in the industry, you know, almost eight years ago was this idea that you could have, you know, money as a data type on the internet and you could program it and you could create contracts around it and that those could be enforced by code and work globally and interoperably and, and that that would eventually allow for financial services innovation and access to that financial services innovation, you know, globally as well, um, really profound stuff. And, you know, this rule basically just completely ignores the fact that that even exists. Um, it completely ignores the fact that, um, you know, innovation in, in open finance is built on this idea of, you know, smart contracts that whether they're providing lending markets or they're providing other forms of economic arrangements, are executing in code and that individuals for the first time ever have the ability to access and interact with those. Um, that's a, that's a huge breakthrough. And I think, you know, there, there's obviously like the full decentralization movement, which says, well, the whole point is to get outside of regulated intermediaries. And as long as we have access to, you know, to this outside of regulated intermediaries, it's fine. Uh, it doesn't matter. But I think we want a world where, you know, financial institutions are able to offer, whether it's a business or a consumer, are able to offer people access to this, uh, offer access to these services around the world. I think we want that world. Um, and, you know, effectively, you know, this rule, it's, it says nothing to this issue. And the, the reality is that, um, individuals and businesses are going to want to be able to transact with smart contracts. Like it's sort of like, duh. Like that, that's like so much. And, you know, so this is essentially, I think, you know, really, really limiting. And, and by, by saying nothing to that issue, um, it raises very significant questions about how, you know, a Coinbase, if you're on Coinbase.com, can you can you actually, you know, interact with a smart contract? What is staking? Is staking interacting with a smart contract? What are what are all these things? What what can a, a, a consumer facing or business facing institution do? So that's a major issue. And I I think coming back to the procedural question, you know, what we ought to do is say, okay, we have these, you know, kind of concerns and they're, I think they are legitimate concerns, you know, money laundering and financial crime is legitimate. um, And we can, you know, talk about that, but, 
you know, you, you don't jam it through over the holidays without any consideration, without any thinking, without any industry engagement. And, you know, the, the letter yeah, or the, the, the rule says, oh, yeah, we, we had an hour meeting in March with a few people from exchanges. And last year we went to California for a day. Big f- deal. I mean, that, <laughs> that is not industry engagement. So um, the, the reality here is that um, we need we need industry to be able to work on this and in a really material way and not just this jam through kind of situation. Despite the story of what the industry perceives to be unfair and unreasonable regulation, a lot of regulators and law enforcement seem to have a more industry aligned view of cryptocurrency. In this episode with Assistant U.S. Attorney Jesse Brooks, here's what Zia Faruqi, previously a member of the DOJ strike force that has taken down some of the biggest cryptocurrency criminals around the world, had to say about cryptocurrency being used by criminals. We've given presentations on cryptocurrency, and it's amazing, uh, particularly when you're meeting people, you know, very sophisticated, still understand cryptocurrency. When they see the uh, Jesse with her DOJ insignia, they're like, why don't you? I mean, I literally had people say, like, why not? Why doesn't the U.S. government just turn off? Like, isn't this all criminals? Like, people don't understand that, like, A, that's not something that's possible. But B, my answer to them is always like, you know, people have been committing crime with traditional fiat money for a long time and no one says to ban that. So like, I don't, there's this huge psychic disconnect that I just don't get of like, okay, great. Like someone uses money to do something bad. No one's talking about banning unhosted wallets and fiat. That's called cash, right? Like that's what cash in between someone's bed is. It's an unhosted wallet, right? And criminals do that all the time. Jesse and I could tell you stories from when we had, you know, narcotics cases where you find $200,000 and someone's hidden in the floorboards of their floor. I had a case with that once where it happened, right? And so like, no one's like, well, we should ban cash. And so it's just, it's a, it's a false narrative. And it's a question I think that it, I hope that like, you know, if not, you know, years, if not months and days from now, people will just stop asking like, how much of crypto is, um, you know, criminals? Like, that's not the point, right? Crypto is here. People just need to learn to accept that. And it sounds like, as you point out, big banks are starting to get that too, right? It's not just, it's just not exchanges anymore. And that like, the problem isn't crypto, it's a problem is criminals. And so like criminals will com- commit crime with or without crypto. The question is, how can we, you know, as a society say like, oh, is, is this something that should or shouldn't be regulated? I think that goes to Jesse's point. It's like DOJ is trying to find ways to follow up, uh, you know, and I think their defense lawyers are doing a fabulous job of trying to say like, wait a minute, DOJ, you're going too far. Like this is not uh, within that. You, you're using a regulatory framework for like Western Union sending money, and that doesn't apply necessarily to someone just exchanging from one currency to another. And so th- there is this big open area right now for the law to get fleshed out, um, but that does not speak to the goodness or badness of cryptocurrency. It's here to stay, and people just need to learn to, to live with it. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly. Reserve yours now in the Crypto.com app. OneInch is a decentralized exchange aggregator that sources liquidity from the top DEXs and liquidity sources to save users money and time on swaps. OneInch is capable of finding the best possible trading paths and splitting them among multiple market depths. Recently, the OneInch team unveiled OneInch version 2. The main highlights of v2 are Pathfinder, an API that contains a new discovery and routing algorithm, and a new intuitive user-friendly UI. The v2 improvements ensure the best rates on swaps while dramatically cutting response time. One of the looming regulatory issues will be privacy. 
And even as open and supportive as acting controller of the currency Brian Brooks is of crypto, even he seemed to indicate that Americans should be willing to accept more restrictions on privacy than people in other countries. Here's what he had to say. I would say that privacy in the U.S., uh, financial privacy, you know, in the in the technical protocol, looks a lot different and raises a lot of different issues compared to financial privacy in some other parts of the world. So the analogy I often give is, if you are a dissident in Cuba or if you live in Venezuela or whatever, you probably care a lot more about financial privacy in your individual transactions than we do in the U.S. And that's because a um, you care a lot more about the government not knowing that you're giving money to a political dissident or that you're sending money to a disfavored relative or whatever. In the U.S., where we are legitimately a target of terrorism every day, it feels a little bit different. Yes, there's some things we'd probably rather buy privately, but as a society, we seem to have made the judgment that the threat of people using our financial system for illegal or even terrorism purposes is sufficiently tangible that we need to protect against that and thus give up some privacy in favor of, of that. So I, I think that there's a little bit of schizophrenia in the United States over the, these two things and which side do we really believe. There are times when we say we really believe in privacy as when we tell Facebook they shouldn't be using our data for any purpose and we should have total control over what data uh, exists and who it can be shared with. But then there's another side of us when we look at things like the travel rule, you know, which is applicable to uh, to uh, platform-based crypto transactions, where we've said, no, 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 we want the government to know about all of those transactions and send-receive information has to be appended to every single transaction on a platform. So I think we need to resolve those as a society. We haven't done that yet. So one of the great things about our interagency process is we suss those issues out, we hear all the different views, and then we try and balance them. That That's a work in progress at this point. Given what's been happening with regulation on crypto wallets, it's perhaps not surprising that Meltem Demiris of CoinShares cited privacy as her biggest concern for crypto going forward. I'm only looking at one thing, and it's uh, laws associated with privacy. Right now, encryption is under attack in the United States and in most Western nations, most developed countries. Uh, so there is a a number of bill. There are a number of bills, pardon, on the floor right now. They're sponsored by Republicans, uh, particularly Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham. Uh, <laughs> the Earn It Bill in particular is what I'm referring to, which would seek to, to limit and severely curtail the use of end-to-end -end encryption in consumer-focused applications and implement the effectively uh, a backdoor for the NSA and other intelligence agencies and Five Eyes, you know, the this uh this organization of intelligence agencies around the world have sort of signed off on this. We saw a few weeks ago there was a statement from the, the DOJ and, and sort of the powers that be um, that the calling for more surveillance on the crypto ecosystem travel rule is seeking to go from $3,000 transaction limit to a $250 transaction limit. Around the world, privacy is under attack. And that means Bitcoin is under attack in many ways. Um, governments want to tax Bitcoin. They want to know who holds Bitcoin. They want to know what you're doing with it. And I think uh, this is this is an existential threat to Bitcoiners everywhere. Um, you know, again, I think the premise that that Lynn raises, premise of hard money, when you can be uh, identified and pressured into, you know, having to pay taxes on these hard assets you hold. Um, you know, Turkey right now is trying to implement a tax on gold. They're trying to figure out how to feasibly tax gold when much of the gold there is held by retail owners, um, you know, under their mattresses and not in bank vaults. Very hard to do. 
But taxing something like Bitcoin is very easy to do. And you can quickly see states try to seize these assets from people. This is this is my greatest fear. So I'm very focused on privacy and privacy-related issues. Um, I believe it's fundamentally important that we maintain the ability for consumers around the world to use products and services that facilitate um, end-to-end encryption and protect their privacy. Another big story this summer was the yield farming craze in DeFi, which, as tends to happen in crypto, took off and also died down rather quickly. Haseeb Qureshi of Dragonfly Capital made the point that one of the drivers of DeFi has been the ease of use of automated market makers like Uniswap. I think there's a really amazing story about how DEXs and, and DeFi has started to look actually more convenient than centralized exchanges. So in the, in the post, I shared a story of a friend of mine who was telling me, you know, uh, there, was, there was some hot token that, was, that he was interested in trading and it, you know, it got listed in a few places. And, and he was telling me like, look, I, you know, I, I, could, I could go like, look up on CoinGecko and try to see which exchanges it's listed on and how many of them are legit and you know, where has the most liquidity and then send up an account and send my funds there. But it's just too much work. And so instead, like, I'm going to go, I'll just like, click a couple buttons and like, buy it on an aggregator or on Uniswap or on whatever. That to me was a little bit of a revelation. They're like, oh shit, people are going to use DeFi because they're lazy, not because they're ideological, not because they care about non-custodial trading. The other element of it that I think uh, is also very important, especially in, in this latest bull run that we've seen kind of centered around DeFi, is that you know, so much of what made Binance successful in the ICO craze was that Binance was the first to list a lot of these assets, right? And so if you wanted to get in early, and of course, so much of crypto speculation is about getting in early, uh, you had to go to Binance because that's just where that's where things got listed first. And now you're seeing that actually happen on DeFi. DeFi is where it's listed first, right? Comp first traded on, on Uniswap before it traded on any centralized exchange. Uma was trading first on, on Uniswap. Uh, so many of these assets are first available in DeFi before they're available on any centralized exchange. And so if you want to get in early, if you want to get in with the cool kids, if you want to get in with all, what all the influencers are doing, uh, they're all on DeFi doing it all direct. And I think that's another thing that's driving a lot of the uh, excitement for people to get onto DeFi. And of course, it's driving up gas fees like crazy. Um, but it's it, in, a, in a way, it's part. It's become part of the game that DeFi is now you know the hottest, coolest place where all the people are making all the money, and that of course is incentivizing people to say, "Hey, shit, I want a piece of that." Vitalik Buterin expressed his concern over some of the yield farming mania he was seeing and struck a cautionary note about it. I think. Uh... One big one is just that a lot of people are underestimating smart contract risk. And so, like, I remember even a year ago, like, there were people on Twitter, I think it was, making the case that, you know, hey, if uh, you have dollars in a regular bank account, then you're making maybe 2% interest, and that assumes, you know, like some kind of fixed uh, deposit, whatever. And if it's variable, then it's even less. Um, and it, But if you put your dollars into a... Compounds and you're getting 4%. Well, why the hell would anyone choose 2% over 4%? Clearly, 4% is better. Or even if, if you put your dollars in DAI, clearly 4% back when it was 4%, clearly 4% is better. And my response was, well, 4% is only better than 2% if those systems are exactly the same in every other way, right? And in fact, for the 4% system to be better than the 2% system, you basically need the 4% system to have less than a 2% chance a year of breaking, right? Because if the 4% system has a 5% chance a year of breaking, then it becomes negative 1%. And so I feel like there's a lot of people that are just 
not fully taking this into account in some of their calculations. And, you know, they might think that, oh, okay, it's been safe for a while, it's been safe for a while, and these projects are audited. And like a lot of these DeFi projects really have like done a, a great job of uh, auditing themselves and just doing a way better job of that and learning from the mistakes of the DAO and all of those things. But at the same time, you know, are we safe enough that we can promise a chance of breaking of less than 2% a year? I don't, I don't think we can get there yet. Right. So like, that's one thing. And so I think, uh, and if the main takeaway from that criticism, I guess, is that DeFi is still fine, but like, don't act like it's a place where you should advocate for a lot of regular people to put, uh, to put their life savings into. Now, there are, of course, places where, you know, CFI, uh, and uh, as in the traditional banking system has risks too, right? And like, there's a lot of people who, because of their specific context, like their money might get seized or like their local currency might get hyperinflated or all these things. And so like, if you're in one of those situations where the, the risks of the centralized uh, kind of stuff is uh, greater than 2% a year from you, then, you know, by all means, get into DeFi and it's safer. Um, but, or at least, when I say DeFi, in this case, I mean stable coins, right? Get into stable coins and they're safer. Um, but like, if you're just in uh, DeFi to get, you know, 4% interest instead of 2% interest, then like that's probably not something you should be doing. So that's one thing. The other thing is that there are a lot, sometimes DeFi things happening that are not very sustainable. Right. So like one big example of this is like yield farming. Right. So like this is big, this big hot trends that we've been seeing recently. And you can often get these really high interest rates. It was like 20 percent, 30 percent, you know, 100 plus percent annually. But the problem is that these interest rates are ultimately uh, they're paid for by rewards explicitly provided by whatever protocol was uh, is uh, doing the lending. Right. Like they're either provided by Compound or they're provided by whoever else. Like I forget what the acronyms are these days. And those guys are not going to just keep on printing coins for people to to entice people to get into their ecosystems forever, right? It's a short-term thing, and like once the enticements disappear, you can easily see the yield rates like drop back down very close to zero percent. So. It's not a that's not something that could make DeFi break, but it definitely is a sign that like we should not necessarily be treating a kind of temporary advantages that we have now as reasons or as uh, things that we be, should be pushing in front of out in front of the entire world as like reasons why everyone should get into DeFi because if you push them out to the entire world, then by the time people start getting into DeFi, these uh, kind of temporary advantages are not going to be there anymore. Taylor Monahan of MyCrypto and Dan Guido of Trail of Bits talked about security and DeFi. Here is Taylor talking about what it is that actually gives her confidence in a DeFi protocol and why one can never feel 100% secure. I think that I asked on Twitter two weeks ago now, you know, what are the things that like every developer should do before, you know, having $25 million in their contract on mainnet, you know, what are the big red flags? And there's a lot of like really deep in the weeds type, you know, type things that I think are really, really important. Um, But it was actually interesting because some of the responses were like very different, but also really enlightening. And so, you know, one thing that came out of that conversation was, you know, if someone doesn't have an audit, 
that's a really big red flag. Like if they don't get anyone to look at their code, um, that's a red flag. You know, but that doesn't just because they have an audit, it does not mean that they're secure. It does not mean that they're ready for mainnet. Uh, it just means that, like, you know, there's not a red flag in that in that uh, area. It doesn't put a green one there. It's just not a red flag. Um, and then some of the other ones that I think were really interesting, you know, were around uh, the teams and the people and how sort of. Um, like how much effort and time they dedicated to the things that weren't the literal code. So uh, a lot of teams obviously love to focus on the code. They love to focus on the product. Uh, They want to build this awesome system, you know, but did they spec out the project before starting to write that code and figure out, you know, what exactly the architecture is going to look like? Uh, Did they document the intended behavior um, you know, does the white paper, is it like a marketing piece or is it actually, you know, uh, a technical document that dives into all the different situations? Um, another really interesting one that I, I, I can't necessarily call it a red flag today because not a lot of people do it, but, um, certainly would, would allow me to have more faith in a team is if they, uh, Anytime they sort of acknowledge the risks of their project or their code or their system, um, you know, if they've taken the time to, especially if they've taken the time to document and share where the bad things are that could happen, um, that shows me that they not only have like awareness around their code base, they also have awareness that bad things could happen, which is something that (laughs) is surprisingly missing in this space. Um, and it also shows that, you know, they've, they've taken the time to write it down and that provides like an additional level of accountability. And so, you know, all of these sort of tools, you know, there's not one thing that's going to make a project trustworthy. There's not one thing that's going to make a project secure. Um, but if you take them all together, you know, a team that is, um, a team that has a better chance of success is a team that, you know, has documents, they've written tests, they have a specification, um, you know, they're engaged with the community for a long time, they're open to questions, they're open to answering the questions, um, you know, they're aware that not everything is perfect and glorious all the time and that bad things can and probably will happen. Um, and I'll say, I think the first conversation I ever had with Robert from Compound, I was very skeptical and I was like, <laughs> So you're just going to have all this money on the smart contract and, you know, how are you ever going to know it's secure? And he literally just responded and he was like, well, there's always a non-zero risk. Like it's never, there's never going to be a moment where I can go to sleep and be like, everything's perfect. Nothing bad will happen. And it really, Mm -hmm. it knocked me off my feet because I had been, you know, talking to so many people in the space where, you know, the answer would have been, oh, well, we had two audits by two different auditors and then we had it formally <laughs> verified and, you know, we have 100% test coverage, you know, but it's actually Robert that gives me more faith in his team, that code, the compound protocol, because I know that today and tomorrow and the next day, you know, that that culture is going to always be on the lookout, you know, whether that's the lookout for other hacks that may also affect the compound system, whether that's awareness of, um, you know, flash loans coming into existence, whatever it is, um, you know, they have a better chance of success than, you know, even someone that has had all of the audits and used all of the tools. 
In this huge news year for crypto, Ethereum also reached its fifth birthday. Here is Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum, reflecting on the last five years. Ethereum's definitely come a long way in the last five years, and it's definitely been really striking to just see the change, uh, just see how much change there has been, and even just see how more and more of the change is just outside of mine and even outside of the Ethereum Foundation's control. So, like, if you remember Ethereum in 2014 and 2015, it was this much uh, kind of smaller, tighter-knit community Everyone who was doing anything important uh, and knew each other and was coordinating really closely. You know, there was myself, there was Gavin, there was the, the developer team, uh, there was Vlad, um, some other people, and everyone was uh, kind of very closely talking to each other. And then uh, just kind of over time, there just started to be more and more people coming into the community, right? So I remember DEFCON 1 in London was this big uh, kind of coming out party for Ethereum in a lot of ways. And that was when Microsoft announced their cooperation with Ethereum for the first time. And like, that was huge, right? Like in 2020, it's like, you know, eh, okay, it's another bank, another software company doing something. But in 2015, it's like, whoa, you mean a big software company is doing blockchain things? <laughs> um, and, you know, since then, there are a lot of these different banking groups uh, doing things on blockchains. Uh, there have been, uh, a lot of just independent individual projects that all have their own stories. You know, Augur um, is uh, pretty big and has its own story. Maker is uh, quite big and has its own story, as do all of these other kind of sub-communities um, within the Ethereum ecosystem that are, at this point, even even themselves bigger than Ethereum was uh, five years ago. And so just uh, kind of seeing that expansion and uh, just continuing nonstop, you know, going from 2014 to 2016 and then the big kind of bubble uh, and then even past the bubble, right? So, like the hype died down, but I think uh, the communities continued to expand in a lot of ways. And just seeing that happen has been incredible. And seeing the technology progress has been incredible. Seeing things like uh, proof of stake progress from being, you know, not sure if they can even work to an idea, to a white paper, to a spec, to now um, a, a public multi-client test network has been uh, you know, wonderful as well. So, you know, lots of uh, great things are happening, and I'm very happy that lots of great things are happening. The launch of Ethereum's Beacon Chain was also a milestone for the second biggest cryptocurrency, and it was a long time in the making. Here's how Masari analyst Ryan Watkins expects the monetary policy of Ethereum 2.0 will change how ETH functions as an asset. Uh, Chris Berniski, I think back in 2017, uh, introduced these this kind of uh, this this paper from uh, you know an academic called I think his name was like Robert Greer about the, the three superclasses of assets that and the idea is that every asset in the world uh, that has ever existed can be classified into these three different categories. Uh, one being stores of value, with the idea being that these are assets that maintain their purchasing power uh, throughout time. Uh, two being capital asset, with the idea being that these are assets that produce and are generated income. And then three being commodities, um, which are assets that can are can be consumed or are they transformable into to something else. So examples of those would be, you know, for uh, a capital asset would be, you know, a stock or a bond in Apple. This is kind of this like income producing uh, asset. An example of commodity would be like oil, 
Uh, you, can, you can use oil for a ton of different things to power your car. You can turn it to different um, you know, end products. And then for a store of value, uh, you know, it could be you know, debatably the U.S. dollar, uh, although some people would kind of scoff at that in this space, or, uh, or gold, which actually is both a commodity and a, a store of value. So that, that's kind of like the high-level idea of like these, these asset classes. Now, Ethereum and Ethereum 1.0 is a commodity and a store of value. It's a commodity because it's used as, uh, as gas to pay for transactions. Um, and I think this relationship will be, or this analogy will be especially powerful when a new EIP is introduced called EIP 1559, uh, where, uh, the majority of transaction fees, uh, will actually be burned instead of being paid for miners. So it'll quite literally be like, you know, consumed by the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, for store of value, like that's Ethereum's use as a asset in, you know, DeFi to store value to send transactions. Like that's the idea. Uh, so that's Ethereum as, as it exists today. Now, with Ethereum 2.0, it introduces uh, staking. And what staking allows you to do is you can uh, post your ETH as collateral to become a validator on Ethereum 2.0. And now you can actually start generating uh, yield on your on your ETH. And the amount of yield you will get varies on the amount of uh, ETH that's being staked. So at you know, 524,288 uh, ETH, uh, you know, like kind of like you said before, like the, 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 the rate that you'll be getting is, is very high. It'll be about, say, like 23, 24%. And then at uh, about like 10 million or 16 million ETH staked, it'll be somewhere between like 4 and 6%. Uh, but this idea is that uh, now you're getting a yield on, like a native yield on ETH. Uh, so when you combine those, those three things, it's like, well, you have all these different sources of uh, demand for ETH the asset, and ETH is being you know, used for all these different things. And then I'm like a little bit hesitant to say that it's unprecedented, because I've, I've, I've not literally explored every asset in, in history. <laughs> um, but from, <laughs> what, I, but from what, I, what I have seen, uh, is this, there's nothing really like this. You know, something that is a, a non-sovereign uh, store of value, you know, just like Bitcoin, uh, that is also used to, you know, power this, you know, globally scalable uh, computer uh, and also offers a, a native yield, uh, almost similar to a, a kind of like sovereign bond in a sense. And the, the combination of the three just makes ETH uh, super interesting as, as an asset. Olaf Carlson we of Polychain Capital discussed how a number of trends in DeFi, such as yield farming and DAOs, show how the traditional corporate structure could transform into something else entirely. This concept of yield farming, or what I sometimes call network mining, um, I think is a very interesting mechanism to sort of bootstrap network effects in an underlying system. Primarily in this case, it's bootstrapping liquidity in some sort of lending marketplace or, or trade volume in a DEX marketplace or something like that. And in doing both the bootstrapping of, of the liquidity, you're simultaneously then distributing ownership um, and control of that system to the underlying users. So you're sort of accomplishing two things. One is the capital formation and human coordination around what is effectively distributing what look and feel a little bit like shares of a corporation, but it's not a business entity or legal entity that's based in a specific geography or jurisdiction. 
It's rather just a pure software system that allows those people to coordinate around capital and coordinate decision making. So you're, you're both sort of distributing ownership of that underlying system while simultaneously bootstrapping the network effects of that system. And so today, yeah, that's trading, that's lending. Uh, but I think this is a very, very useful structure potentially to bootstrap really theoretically any sort of platform that has network effects. And so these kind of financial service applications, I think, make a lot of sense as a first use case. But I think over time, these types of liquidity mining type schemes will actually be used to bootstrap, you know, massively multiplayer online games, uh, bootstrap social media services, you know, any sort of e-commerce marketplace, really any sort of business model that has strong network effects where the users, you know, kind of primary benefit is from the activity of other users. So when I go on Facebook, right, I don't go on that website in order to interact with Facebook or some sort of service Facebook provides. I go on there because of the content that's being produced by the other users of that service. And so any sort of application where those network effects exist, in theory, you could bootstrap those network effects and distribute ownership of the underlying service using the same mechanism, which is this sort of network mining. And so to me, there's really two paths of innovation happening in the cryptocurrency landscape that sort of feed on each other and are a very powerful feedback loop between the two of them. One is these actual DeFi products and protocols and just sort of thinking of them as a product, right? Where I can trade a token for another token or I can get you know yield on an underlying uh, asset or I can borrow assets. You're sort of kind of seeing very, very fast iteration on that product development side. But simultaneously, um, you're seeing incredible experimentation in the capital formation and human coordination side, which sort of props up these corporations, which are sort of sovereign to the internet rather than registered in a specific geography. Um, and so I think that, you know, you have these two separate structures like the, the DAO or the decentralized organization and the DeFi product and protocol. Um, and both of these are, you know, we're just going through a massive step function change where the pace of iteration and experimentation is hard for anyone to keep up with. Then I asked him about the Wi-Fi token of the Yearn protocol and how he saw it as representative of changing corporate structures. Yeah, I mean, you know, one could argue that, you know, every cryptocurrency sort of has this feature, but it's this ability for a group of people to coordinate around a set of rules and coordinate capital together, which is basically what a corporation is, right? You have a pool of capital, you have turnover of management, so it doesn't rely on any specific individual. Um, You have secondary markets where the shares which represent an interest in that capital um, can trade. And then you have a governance process where the underlying shareholders can vote on how to allocate that capital in order to improve the value of their shares, right? And um, conceptually, that's what a lot of these kind of internet sovereign corporations or or DAO-like structures look like, right? They're actually replacing the corporate entity itself. All of the legal documents um, that are enforced in geographic jurisdictions and are, you know, a corporation is like registered with the state. That's kind of how you get it into existence. You replace that entire system with pure software. And so it's, it's to me conceptually a really big deal. Um, But again, yeah, it it looks a little bit like a a toy or a meme right now. And yeah, I, I think that it's a really effective mechanism for bootstrapping and managing certain types of products 
And it turns out specifically products that are um, based on smart contracts. And so over time, though, I think you'll see this sort of bootstrapping mechanism and capital coordination and sort of um, taking the corporate structure and putting it on the internet, replacing it with software. Um, I think you will see that type of model applied to like um, social media networks, for example, or massively multiplayer online game environments. And I think we're um, still a ways out from those things. But in theory, I see no reason why this structure couldn't take on, you know, many, many different types of businesses. Here's what the creator of Yearn, Andre Kronia himself, had to say about these ideas. I don't know if I'd say replaces versus a decentralized implementation thereof. But 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 now I'm, I'm being very specific on terminology because you you know business business structures exist because they function well. So so we 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 saw it with with yearn governance as well, where originally everyone was just participants and it was quite chaotic, and eventually sort of leaders started popping up in their respective areas. You know, marketing had their own figurehead and and finance had their own figurehead, and and eventually. These people were elevated to the positions where where they're sort of the delegated decision makers, um, and and that's very traditional business structure. But instead of where in a traditional business structure it's very top down, this all occurred organically, bottom up. So that's why I'd say you you're still going to end up with the same sort of business structures if you draw it on a piece of paper. I, I just think the way that you arrive at who those people are and and how they are are empowered to do so it's very different because now if if one of those actors are no longer functioning appropriately you know it's not a ceo that's firing them but it's it's the people in the forum that are delegating their power to them that end up replacing them so so it's this mix of business and i mean if if you look at traditional business structures and you look at traditional democracy politics structures i i think they overlap a lot in in how they accomplish this and doing that all in a in a decentralized semi non way, I I think is very very cool. But I I don't think it replaces it. I think it's it's just a different implementation thereof. But you agree that it is kind of like a new type of business structure that we're seeing, except just completely different from what's been around for the last couple hundred years. Yes. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I was just <laughs> thinking, uh, like it's it's a. It's weird it being put that way, but I guess, which is pretty cool. Thanks so much for tuning in to the 2020 Highlights episode. I don't know about you, but recapping all these big stories in crypto made me even more excited for 2021 to see what events it will bring. To listen to or watch the full version of any of these clips, check out the show notes for this episode, which contains links to all the interviews included. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the show on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Bossy Baker, Shashank, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. 